Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. Hit your money goals without switching platforms. Download SoFi's all-in-one super app for industry-leading APY. Great loan rates and stock trading. SoFi, get your money right. Banking products and loans offered by SoFi Bank, NANMLS 696891. Brokerage and active investing products offered through SoFi Securities, LLC, member FINRA, SIPC. Welcome to the Monday edition of On the Tape. I'm Dan Nathan. I am joined, as always, with Guy Christopher Adami. That's what the C stands for and the Guy C. Adami. And, of course, EY from SoFi. That would be Liz Young from SoFi. She is the head strategist over there. She is our Monday co-host of On the Tape. Also, guys, when we get through a bunch of stuff that we are focused on for the week, some of the biggest calls early this week, Guy and I go off the tape with Rob Frasca. He is the CEO founder of Cosmo Ventures. This is a blockchain-focused fund, but the guy is a total stud, early internet entrepreneur, former Navy pilot, and now doing a lot of interesting things in and around blockchain and investing in companies that are focused on blockchain. He thinks this is about as early as it was in the 90s for the internet. So stick around for that conversation. All right, peeps, how are we? What up? No, I wish the people at home could see what's going on right now. Dan is sporting a San Diego Padres cap. It happened to look good on you. And EY has got some like coffee hat that looks about (laughs) four sizes too big, which is fantastic. Uh, I just went for a run. And you don't want to see what's happening under this hat. That's why I still have it on. I don't even know what the name of the coffee shop is, but I know that it's in Huntington Beach, California. I made the comment earlier, Dan, that EY looks like Clarice Starling during her run early on in Silence of the Lambs. But that's neither here nor there because we have some markets to talk about, Dan. Yeah, we do. It's more like Silence of the Bears here, Guy. I mean, when you think about Mike Wilson, friend of ours, friend of the pod, he is the head strategist CIO over at Morgan Stanley. He was one of the early bears in 2021 on the broad market. He kind of stuck to his guns most of last year. I think it was mid-October. We've talked about it a bunch. He came on our pod right before. Before he did it, he went bullish tactically. He was calling for like a 15 to 20% rally off the October lows. At the time, he was talking about really poor positioning, bad sentiment. You know the drill there. And he got that move. And then he turned the other way. And then he doubled down again in December after the market rallied a little bit. So he's out this morning with a note talking about how the S&P held its 200-day moving average last week. And he's calling for a tactical move to 41.50. Well, guys, right now, you know, the S&P is at 40.50. Um, that seems I think, Guy, you said in an early email exchange, it's a little cute, but we're going to give Mike the leeway because he's been right about all that stuff. And I'll just mention the other point is that Peter Bookvar, a friend of ours, friend of the pod, you know, had a note out in the book report this morning talking about, listen, if you were really bearish in October at the lows when we got down to 3,600 or so, when you think about where rates are right now versus then, it's a totally different story here. So, Guy, thoughts on that? You know Mike really well. Mike's been on the pod a bunch here. And to your point, is he getting a little cute here for 100 S&P points? Maybe I'm getting cute and saying that he's getting a little cute, but he's right, obviously. And we discussed this. The S&P did hold that 3940 level, which was a 200-day moving average. I'm surprised with how robust the bounce off it has been. You know, I thought it would hold and bounce, but I thought that bounce would be short-lived. But, you know, here we are, some 110 or so S&P handles higher. So is he being too cute? Well, as you mentioned, Dan, 4150 is not all that far away at this point. You know, we've seen 30, 40 point moves in the S&P to the upside a myriad of times over the last six months. So a couple of days of that, and there we are. But I'll say this in terms of, you know, getting a little too cute. I don't know. I think it feels as though people that share our view, and I'm obviously in the bearish camp, the frustration that I feel is the same frustration that I felt you know, a month or so ago, and we had that conversation with EY about sort of making sure you're checking your work and talking to people that have been sort of mentors to you to make sure you're not missing anything. And again, I'll just emphasize, I don't think, at least for myself, I don't think I'm missing anything. If the bull case here 
Is it people are too bearish? I don't know. That's built on sand to me. Before this little rally happened and before we tested that 200-day moving average and it held, people were looking for 4,300 because that was the most recent high back in August, right? So 4,150 is actually kind of disappointing compared to what the bulls had been saying earlier this year that we're going all the way back up to 4,300. And one of the things, actually, Dan, that you just said, I think that's a good point. Think to yourself as an investor, if you were bearish in October, have things gotten materially better since then? I think they've gotten materially worse in the sense that conditions have gotten tighter. Inflation hasn't gone down as quickly as we've expected. We're still sort of waiting. Earnings have gone down, right? So the setup has not gotten better. If you were bearish in October, it's difficult to make the case to be bullish now. And, you know, I don't know that I think Mike is getting too cute about this. I think that he's probably trying to recognize the fact that He's been consistently bearish throughout and that right now, maybe the momentum and just the appetite for buying is still there. And I'll recognize that, too, despite the fact that I am still negative on the market. I do think that we're going to see a contraction both in multiples and in earnings over the next three to six months. But I think he's trying to just acknowledge that there's somebody out there buying, and that is important to acknowledge. I think he's using technicals and maybe sentiment right here as an excuse to say, you know, I'm going to bide myself a little time because I think the earnings degradation has just been pushed out a little bit, right? And I think that's part of his story. So um, again, I think he he talked about how, you know, the S&P, they kind of matched their first test for 2023, where the estimates, again, this is a story, though, from 2020. 22, where we had these rallies into and out of earnings season because estimates had come down. Lots of companies beat lowered estimates. And then when they gave guidance, it wasn't as bad as people thought. And it was a very orderly sell-off. And we had those sorts of 10, 15% rallies. You know, I think us collectively think they were bear market rallies. Let's see where this one peters out. Okay, over the weekend in China, and I think this is kind of big news too, You know, President Xi was talking about, uh, again, trying to put on a really strong face. They did this about um, about face for, for their zero COVID policy. Um, but the GDP estimate that he gave was below that, that they had been giving you know, for last year. I think they were targeting 5.5% for this year. He said could be 5% or so. I think some people or some economists and, and some pundits were kind of dis- disappointed about that. Talk to me, Guy, a little bit what that means for the resource trade. You know, we spent a lot of time in late 2022. Some of those rallies last year were predicated on the China reopening trade, right? When their engine was going to get back to work and kind of fuel a kind of global growth reflation trade. And I'm just curious because, you know, I think a lot of us were a bit skeptical. We thought they might be coming back online whenever it is that they do at a time where maybe the US or Europe was weakening. So what is this mean for that reflation trade? Because they are acknowledging that growth in 2023 is not going to be high as they expected. And if they are doing that, and President Xi is doing that right now, then it's probably likely weaker than that maybe 5% that they're guiding to. Well, it's interesting you say that it's probably weaker. I would take the other side and say, you know, he's probably under promising and maybe over delivering on the back end. And I think there's still this thought, and it's very difficult to get in the mind of President Xi, but you know, a consolidation of power. Obviously, you've seen what's going on in China over the last two and a half or three years, and I think this, in in my in my opinion, is just a way for him to sort of regalvanize his stronghold. Okay, we're going to have five percent growth, and you know, they can sort of alchemy numbers any way they want. My sense is when they start reporting GDP, you're probably going to see them beat to the upside. Is my sense now? The resource trade obviously didn't like it today. I mean, looking at a number of stocks, Alcoa, Freeport, McMoran, for example, you know, Liz mentioned earlier before we started that maybe the reason that gas is down as much as it is today is on the back of those headlines. We'll see. But, you know, I think this could be one of those cases of over under promising and over delivering. We'll see. But it's interesting you took it the other way. And as I say all the time, that's what makes markets, Dan. Well, the other thing is, I mean, and I'll say this as judiciously as I can, do we really trust the independence of numbers coming out of China anyway. So if they do want to give this sort of impression later in the year that they're over delivering, okay, fine. I think the interesting part before that, though, is that if the expectations are for weaker growth, then the expectation for the rest of the world is for weaker growth and that China isn't going to necessarily make up for the slack that exists already in the market and in consumption. And I think that that was a lot of what 
some of the bull case was predicated on, not just the U.S. consumer, but that the Chinese consumer would come back and travel would come back and there wouldn't be as many hiccups. So if growth isn't going to be as strong, then it weakens the bull case a little bit further. So if you are correct, Guy, she is under-promising and let's say ultimately they over-deliver on growth, where would you want to be exposed? Because again, you know, the move that we saw in Chinese equities from the October lows, I think nearly doubled that of what we saw in the S&P 500, right? So the anticipation was at some point in 2023, they were going to come off um, zero COVID, you know, and we did see some move in the resource names and obviously Chinese equities, um, you know, massively outperformed, as I just said. Where would you be positioned if you thought that that might be a better place to put money in the U.S., that we will see outperformance in and around the China trade, you know what I mean, given the fact that maybe expectations have been muted at the moment? The volatility in some of these resource stocks are it's ridiculous. It's mind blowing, actually. You know, you see the moves we have in Freeport, Alcoa, uh, some of these other Cleveland cliffs, at least the old Cleveland cliffs on a daily basis. Is quite remarkable um, given the size of the companies, but it's going to come back to energy for me. And in terms of where would you be on the back of that, if I believed in fact that they're going to over deliver, comes down to the energy trade, which has held in there as we talked about dozens of times over the last six months or so. I think these energy stocks are really positioned well, not only for what's going on here in the United States, but clearly what's going on globally. And if China picks up just a little bit, you get that incremental demand. Or if things start to pick up on the margins, as they say, these energy stocks, which have done well, I think it can continue to move to the upside. Well, it's funny. I was out uh, in New York City Saturday night and I had a woman um, come up to me and she, I think she's been at UBS for like 30 years. And I met her once on a plane. She came up as one does and said, hey, I like you on the show, but I, I, I hear that so much. Guy, you and Liz here, I love you on the show. And they, they no just buts. go, well, I have no, no but as you so, know, but that's so, a different so, podcast. So, so I literally, and, and you guys have both been, we've both seen this and I think you guys both chuckle internally when you see it. And so she comes up to me, but, and then she says, this is right in front of my wife. This is in front of Stuart and his wife. It's kind of funny. And then she's like, and guy, you know what she said? Chevron. She said Chevron. Uh, like this woman, I love it. She goes by Ginger. She's so old school. You would you would get cake. She's like, I want you to take a look at Chevron. Dan, you've heard this story, but Guy hasn't heard this story. So a few months ago, I was speaking at an Investopedia conference. We finished the speech. There's somebody in the audience, and you know how people line up after the speech to ask you a question. So there's this line of people, and I'm getting through the line, I'm getting through the line. This guy has been waiting there for like 10 minutes, and he finally comes up to me, and I'm anticipating some question about the markets or whatever I said, and he says, what's Dan Nathan like in real life? <laughs> <laughs> And I, he was expecting me to say that he's you know, he's just as much of a jerk as in real life what? as he is on TV. <laughs> That's a good segue here because the main event this week <laughs> in the markets has a lot to do with inflation and how the Fed are thinking about it, right? So we had Fed Chair Powell speaking Tuesday and Wednesday in front of the Senate on Tuesday and the House on Wednesday. And then we have the all-important February jobs number on Friday. Um, and here's the deal. I mean, guy, you've been laying this out to a T, you know, that the China reopening trade for you was about further inflationary pressures. Like when you're talking about the energy sector, right? And again, making the Fed's job that much harder. What do we think Fed Chair Powell is going to say? Is he going to stick to his guns? Because I got to tell you, you know, when I woke up this morning, the top two headlines on WSJ.com, that is the WallStreetJournal.com, were these. Fed's rate move puts manufacturing sector at risk. And then the second one was housing market momentum stalls as critical spring season approaches. And again, I think that those are two really interesting headlines to cap off Monday morning on the Wall Street Journal before Fed Chair Powell is going to speak two days in a row. And this is not just him giving, like, yes, he will give prepared remarks, but then he's going to take a lot of very politicized questions, right? And they're generally comments, really, from from a lot of these senators and Congress people. How do you, do you think this is going to be market moving guy. Yeah, well, it's, it has been market moving the last few times. And, you know, I, my sense, I'm hard pressed to believe he's going to use the word disinflation, you know, Baker's dozen amount of times again this time around, because quite frankly, things have, things have, I think, changed for the worse in terms of what they're looking at. I mean, inflation is still a problem. The labor market is still extraordinarily tight. And the inflation that they're trying to combat, I mean, it just doesn't go away. It's, it's, it's as stubborn and persistent as it's been in quite some time. And my sense is you, know, you get this job number. I mean, they're quietly hoping 
for an uptick in unemployment rate, I don't think they're going to get it in a meaningful way. Because if you look around and hear what's going on in the labor market, it's still obviously a problem for them. They need unemployment to go higher. They need the housing market to cool. And at a certain extent, you're seeing that cooling in the housing market, but it's not making itself into the inflation data. And I'm hard-pressed to believe he's not going to be as fervent or as robust or as concrete in his views that inflation is still a problem. They're going to still need to do what they need to do to combat it. So I expect extraordinarily hawkish terms from them uh, when they speak. Well, also, we got PCE data since he said disinflation 11 times, right? So, and it didn't, it didn't go well. The PCE data didn't go well. And something that I don't think I mentioned last week when we did OTT, but the services PMI numbers that we were expecting last Friday, I worried about those being market moving events because if they came in hot and the manufacturing PMI numbers had come in hot, if services PMI came in hot, we were in trouble. They came in sort of meh. It, they weren't. They were neither good nor bad. So nothing really happened. But that does continue to be an issue for them. And I've said that multiple times that the services inflation and the services side of the economy continues to move up. And that is what they're watching, despite as frustrating as I find it that they they have this new super core measure of inflation. What they're watching is services, and that part has not given way. So you know the PCE data, the services data, things are not going as they expected or as they planned. Uh, I do expect that labor stays decently strong for another couple months. We're going to get jobs data this Friday. I don't think it's going to be anything terribly disappointing from a, you know, suddenly we don't have as many jobs. I think that they're still out there. However, we have seen some headlines, you know, some of the big job boards out there talking about jobs coming down off their platform. So it's possible that we start to see it in Jolt's data now moving forward. There's a, a story on Axios by Felix Salmon this morning, and it was titled, The Permanent Recession That Never Arrives. And I thought this was interesting, and they were quoting a survey about percentage of Americans who believe the U.S. is in a recession, and it's greater than 50-50, okay, which I think is really interesting. And Guy, you make this point all the time when we have these sorts of recoveries, right? They are not equally distributed among, you know, U.S. citizens slash consumers, however you want to think about it. And, you you know, but to this point and, and to the point that you just made about unemployment, Liz, you know, the jobs picture is like it's not really evident. If you feel like we're in a recession right now, it's only feels that way if you've lost your job. Right. And, and, and right now we are at 53 year lows as it relates to unemployment. But I think when we talk about inflation, and I think one of the reasons and this goes back to guy your early days in the, in the markets in the 60s, 70s um, and probably early 80s when they were battling, you know, high inflation is that, you know, what they really fear are not bouts of inflation, right? You know what I mean? There's a whole host of like these reasons why, you know, we just had a black swan event and a pandemic. No one knew how things were going to go with all the stimulus and all the issues with supply chains and, and just, you know, this rolling sort of like pandemic, which is really what it was around the globe for, for nearly three years. What they worry about is that inflation fears become embedded in consumers and businesses, right? And so, Guy, talk to me a little bit about that because, Again, when you think about what the Fed's tools are to battle it is going from zero to 5% in Fed funds, right? Is going from buying $120 billion a month, right? In treasuries and mortgage-backed securities for two years and then turning it, right? And then trying to run off their balance sheet. There's no way that the stock market last year, if you're looking at that as the kind of report card on the Fed's job of battling inflation, tells the whole story. And it tells the story about what's likely to happen in the economy when we literally just went from the most accommodative global positioning on monetary and fiscal policy to the exact opposite and the quickest change in which they've done it. So like, that's the thing that I think has a lot of bears scratching their heads. And to kind of bring it full circle to what Mike Wilson is maybe trying to do with his call is that he doesn't want to get caught being the the last bear standing a little bit. And again, that is not a criticism. I know I've known Mike for 25 years in this business. He's one of the smartest market minds, but we also know that we are not and guys like him are not talking out of both sides of our mouths all the time so they can kind of wiggle their way out of it if we are just off to the races and into like and let's say we hit that kind of soft no landing situation and it's just, you know, we're on our way to S&P 5000 in 2 years. Yeah, a lot to unravel there. So inflation fears felt by 
our fellow citizens. I mean, I, I would push back and, and listen, I understand what you're saying, but it's not fears. I mean, these things are being actually felt by people. I mean, so the fear portion of this is gone and now the reality is set in. Inflation is a problem for a lot of people. And when, you know, I get upset about the whole recession thing and I say it a hundred times, I'm not smart enough nor humorless enough to be an economist, but for so many people in this country, you know, I would submit anywhere from 12 to 15% of our fellow citizens, they wish we were in a recession because for them, they're dealing with stuff that we felt in the late 1920s, early 1930s. And that's not me being hyperbolic here, Dan. That's just the facts. I mean, people are deciding whether or not they should feed their families, heat their homes, you know, pay their electric bills, whatever it is. And things are really dire for them. And they hear recession and they're saying, shit, you know, I wish it was only that bad because for us, it's infinitely worse. So these fears have absolutely been not only faced, but are being dealt with now. In terms of the market, you know, Julian Emanuel came on Fast Money, I think, two or so weeks ago, and he made a great point. And Liz has mentioned this as well. With all the money that's been sloshing around out there, it's still making its way through the system. And some of it may be manifesting itself into the stock market, and we'll see. But the lag effect that takes place, to Liz's point, a hundred times you know, 5% raise in the course of 12 months or so. I mean, we have not felt the impact of that at all, not only in the economy, but in the market as well. Yeah. He, so the thing about Mike Wilson is funny. If you go on Twitter today, there's already people saying, oh, the last bear, the last bear fell. He didn't stop being a bear. He just said in the short term, there could be a little more room to run. And yeah, I mean, look, I said this before we even started raising rates aggressively that we have to do this. People were critical of the Fed for raising rates and that they were doing it too far too fast. They have to, because if you leave inflation untouched and if you don't fight it, that puts us in a recession no matter what. And it's not just about you know what people's expectations are or, or how they're feeling it today. If you look at inflation expectations, that's what the Fed watches. Those have absolutely skyrocketed since the beginning of the year. That's a problem. That's how it becomes embedded in the economy, because not only are you feeling it today, but you expect it to stick around for the next one or two years. That's where it's embedded. That's where it's entrenched. And that's where you start to get the wage price spiral, which personally, I think we're already seeing the wage price spiral. But that's how it becomes an issue. And I don't think we're talking about inflation expectations enough. Yeah. And just to remind some of our listeners here, um, you know, a, a lot of you guys think that Danny, Guy and I are, are very much in the same camp. And you asked us to bring on a bull, a strategist. And we did on Friday, we had Tom Lee of Fundstrat on with us. And Tom, whatever view you have of him and, and the way he looks at the data and, and how it kind of transmits to his kind of market view, um, whether you think he's always bullish or not. I mean, he's very sober. He's very thoughtful. They do a lot of quantitative work. And he laid out, uh, I think, a pretty decent case, you know, it didn't change my mind about where I think, you know, stocks are going in 2023, but that conversation is there. So definitely check that out. Um, guy, I just want to hit like some single names. Are there any, you know, we talked about energy a little bit. Are there any areas of the market or are there any specific stocks? You know, before we came on, we just talked about how Goldman, I think, uh, initiated Apple with like a buy and 199 price target. And, you know, here's a stock right now that has rallied really from like almost 147 to 155 in three trading days. And it's very near the top of this range that it got to in February. And just to be really clear, you know, in early January, this stock was making new 52-week lows, trading as low as 124. So that's 30 bucks. That's about 20%, you know, from the January lows. That's a big move here. And, you know, we've gone back and forth is like, what will be the leadership out of the bear market? And, you know, there's a lot of debate, whether it's going to be the prior leaders, whether it's going to be this mega cap tech stock. That's been my view that it likely will be that. I'm just curious when you see a stock like Apple, which we know is in the crosshairs, when you think about all the issues as far as China growth, if you think about kind of demand for their products, if you think about a, a dollar, the Dixie index, which, you know, got as high as what, 114, it's trading 104, but still on a year over year basis is very firm, right? There's a whole host of issues here. A slowing U.S. consumer would be a problem for them. Are there any names that you like are, are on the top of your fact set machine that you got focused on that are really going to kind of maybe tell you the story about how we come out of the bear? Well, I saw the Goldman, Goldman Sachs initiated coverage in Apple. I think they put a $199 price target on it. I, it's interesting to me that Goldman was not covering Apple. Maybe their analysts left the front. I, you know, I don't know what happened there. But with that said, obviously, to the, the extent we're seeing strength today, it's predicated probably on the back of that. And 
I'm hard pressed to believe, you know, initiation would have been a sell out of Goldman Sachs on Apple. So I take that with a bit of a grain of salt. And I do think there's this tail risk, 10 to 15% tail risk for a company, specifically Apple. You know, if things continue to sort of, um, the rhetoric continues to sort of heaten up on the China, Taiwan, China, US front, Apple will be used as a pawn, I think, in that economic battle. And that's not going to be good. I look at NVIDIA now trading $240 probably up, what, 115, 120% from those lows we saw in the fall. Now trading, Dan, and you know this better than I, probably 20 times revenues or so, which is a remarkable number. You know, a company that really got itself to a decent valuation six months ago is now trading at a rather expensive valuation. Again, I mention that because I'm not quite sure what people are looking at. You're going to tell me AI and they're at the forefront of it. I totally get it. But when you sort of peel back the onion on their quarter, some of their core businesses didn't do all that well. So I look at that. And then I look at an OIH, which is trading 330 as we sit here. Sticky as hell in terms of the resilience that those names have had. And it goes back to the comment I made earlier when we had that China conversation. You know, I think the energy patch, specifically these oil services names, but, you know, Chevron to your friend Ginger, who you brought up earlier, and some of these other things, those names makes sense on a number of different metrics. And if you want to talk about valuation, I still think they're reasonable in this environment. So Liz, you know, a couple sectors that you've been focused on, obviously small caps, which is not a sector, but it's a portion of the market and then financials. I mean, these are, you know, the, the outperformance of the financials has been remarkable off the October lows, but definitely as we've seen this yield curve get more inverted, um, as guys been calling for a 1% inversion, we're at what nearly 93 bips right now. You've definitely seen in this last rate push over the last few weeks, you know, banks have kind of stalled out a little bit here. So I'm curious how you're thinking about financials. And I guess the segue to small caps is we know that there's a lot of smaller financials within small caps. I mean, are there areas, are there sectors of the markets that you're focused on that might kind of change your tune? I mean, you are not particularly bearish the way Guy and Danny and myself are. You're a bit cautious at the moment and you're always looking to put money to work in different sectors. How is this kind of higher for longer rate environment informing some of your views on specific sectors? Well, so the thing about financials, and, and you're right. So if you look at large cap financials, it's a lot of well-diversified revenue streams, the names that we all know very well, JP Morgan, Citi, you know, all the big five. But then as you move down the market cap spectrum, especially in the mid cap space, you end up with a lot of regional banks. Regional banks are much more exposed to the consumer. They're exposed to lending. So in a time when you've got mortgage rates above six and a half percent and people have stopped taking out mortgages, clearly their revenue on lending is going to suffer. Uh, and if you expect some kind of consumer credit cycle, which I do expect, they suffer in that as well. My optimism on financials is not that they're going to go straight up from here. I do think that they're going to see a pullback, especially if we confirm recession and we see some of the consumer credit stress that I've been expecting that I know all of us have talked about. You are going to see financials get hurt in that environment. My point is that that is a perfect entry point. And in a year where valuations are super important and continue to be important, and we talk about forward PE ratios being inflated right now, in financials, they're really not that inflated. And the banks in particular are the cheapest subsector in the sector. So they're already trading at a reasonable valuation. Bring that down during a correction, and it's even better as a valuation. Not to mention, I think I said this last week a couple times, the sectors that take you to a market peak are not the ones that get you out of the subsequent trough. So financials did not take us to this most recent peak. It was tech, communications, the growthy stuff. I think that the financials, industrials, materials, energy are the ones that would get us out of the trough. So you want to make sure you're exposed to those and that you don't miss it on the way out. Because if and when it bounces from there, it might bounce pretty strongly, especially if we have a yield curve that corrects itself. You know, it's interesting in terms of the financials. I look at Goldman Sachs. Obviously, they've been top of mind recently. They had their first investor day, I think, in three years or so last week. David Solomon apparently on the hot seat there. But the point I made, Dan, and the point I will continue to make, every CEO in the history of the firm, once they're in that seat, has found themselves on the hot seat. So I don't think it's any different now. And in terms of David Solomon specifically, I mean, the tenure since 1969, the average tenure of a CEO there has been about five and a half, six years. And this time next year, he'll be in a similar position in terms of tenure. So if you look at that, I guess he's sort of at the late end. I mention that because as much as people want to ridicule him, 
The stock at one point was up 200% since he took over in October of 2018. And as much as people want to criticize a name like Goldman Sachs, you know, their foray into the sort of consumer side of the equation was failure without question, but their core businesses are as strong probably as they've been in quite some time. So if you're looking for financials in this environment, I think a Goldman Sachs at 1.15 times book makes a lot of sense. All right. Well, thanks, Guy Adami. Thank you, Clarice. Uh, I mean, EY from SoFi. Um, this was the silence, the silencing of the bears here. All right. Stick around. When we come back, Rob Frasca of Cosmo Ventures. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com micros. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com micros. Rob Frasca is a serial entrepreneur, internet pioneer, former Navy pilot, and frequent speaker on blockchain and cryptocurrencies. Rob has been a staple in financial technologies dating back to the early 1990s when he created the internet's first stock boat and portfolio managed service, Galt Technologies, which was sold to Intuit in 1997. Since then, Rob has brought four venture-backed startups to successful exit. Rob now serves as co-founder and managing partner of Cosimo Ventures, which offers the world's first tokenized evergreen venture capital fund, Cosimo X, and the managed staking solution for digital investors, Cosimo Y. The funds provide investors with early access to high-growth potential blockchain projects and top-tier proof-of-stake cryptocurrencies, respectively. So, Rob, it's absolutely a pleasure to have you join us. But before we get started, Navy Pilot, I mean, that is badass. First of all, thank you for your service. But talk to us about being a Navy Pilot. I mean, obviously, Top Gun's one of the top eight movies of all time. And this Maverick was pretty badass as well. But speak to us about Navy Pilot, what it goes into it and some of the experiences you had. You know, it's, it was a boyhood dream of mine. That's all I ever wanted to do by jets. Uh, in fact, I got my pilot's license as a kid before I got my driver's license. And, you know, you, you stay singularly focused on it. And then when you're in your 20s and all of a sudden you're doing it, you know, I used to slap myself in the face and say, Jesus, you know, I, I can't believe I'm actually doing this. It was it was an incredible, incredible, incredible experience. I've moved from being a, a pilot over to being an entrepreneur. And I think one of the things that Flying Jets does, particularly in the Navy, is get you really comfortable with uncertainty and making decisions when you just don't know the answer is you just kind of make the decision and go. So it was really just just an incredible experience for me. Again, thank you for your service for sure. I, I think I can speak on behalf of Dan and all our listeners as well. So thank you. And thank you for being here. So talk to us about your journey to where you are now. I mean, you talked about effectively understanding what risk taking means, pushing things to the envelope and reading your bio and sort of watching some of the videos you seem to have been on the forefront of a number of different things. So clearly, I mean, I'm not going to say you have ESPN or ESP as it may be, but you clearly can see where things are headed. So speak to that and sort of the understanding that, you know, you want to be ahead of the curve in a lot of these things. Yeah. Well, first of all, uh, it was my honor and my privilege to serve. So I appreciate that. But look, I, I've I've always been the kind of person I, I like to say a creator. Uh, I've always been a person that's kind of looked at different markets and said, "Geez, you know, 
uh, you can do it differently. And one of the things I find is, is that, you know, as an entrepreneur, you know, there are kind of two kinds of people in the world. You know, one type of person says, man, this is a problem. You know, you can't do that because it's a problem. Everything's a problem, problem, problem. And I think what an entrepreneur does is they look at problems and say, holy cow, how do I solve this? And if I do solve it, I'm going to create a lot of value. And so that's always been my mindset ever since I was a little kid, right? And so here I am, I'm at uh, Carnegie Mellon teaching ROTC by day. I'm getting my MBA by night. And I see this thing called the internet, right? I mean, this is 1992, 93, right? I was just blown away. I was just absolutely blown away by what the potential could be. So I was uh, going to school with a guy named Joel Mask, and we decided to start the very first financial service on the internet. I mean, this is pre-Netscape, pre-Yahoo, and we decided to actually, you know, put a stock quote server up on the internet. And I was about 28 years old at that point in time. And really from there, I've been in, in kind of fintech and been in, in all things internet since then. Yeah. So Rob, talk to us a little bit, um, you know, uh, about that journey in the nineties, because there were people think it was just kind of bottom left, upper right, you know, and then went parabolic in sort of 99. And we're going to get to Cosimo in, in your experience as a venture investor, but, you know, as an operator, talk to us a little bit about catching a mega trend, right. And, and kind of understanding what the opportunity is. And listen, a lot of people who left Carnegie Mellon in 1993, whether it was undergrad, CS, or MBA, or this was kind of my period. I graduated in 1995. They went to work for bigger companies and maybe used whatever knowledge that they were obtaining or you know, whether it be through academics or through practice for a larger institution. But you said... I'm going to build something. I'm going to partner with somebody. And that entrepreneurial spirit is something that I think was clearly evident during the 90s. We've seen it throughout the different waves of internet and obviously into Web3. Talk to us a little bit about that, like how you decided that you're going to be an entrepreneur. And when I look at your LinkedIn, you have been nothing other than an entrepreneur, creating things, creating value. And then obviously, and I'm sure you've had shareholders along the way, creating a lot of um, financial value for them. Yeah, look, when I was going to school at Carnegie Mellon, I actually got a job as a venture capitalist, uh, unpaid internship, uh, let's call it that. And one of the principals there, I said to him, I said, look, when I get my MBA and leave, I said, I want to do one of two things. I want to either start a company, be an entrepreneur or be a venture capitalist, be an investor and invest in, in these companies. And, you know, back then in 93, venture capital wasn't like it is today. It was pretty small. You know, check sizes were pretty small. You know, there was Sand Hill Road and then there was out in Boston, a little corridor there, venture corridor. And I was in Pittsburgh. Anyway, the uh, Kent Engelmeyer, the principal there of the, of the fund said to me, he said, well, look, I think you should go be an entrepreneur because uh, you got to learn how to build companies and grow companies before you can really invest in them. At least that was his opinion. And so go be an entrepreneur. I was really looking at just how profound the internet could be. And my business at the time, we, we you know, like I said, we were doing this thing, this quote server, net worth and all that kind of stuff. And it was just taken off like wildfire. You know, we had put over a hundred financial institutions on the internet for the very first time, Charles Schwab being one of them. The decision was pretty easy for me to make, you know, to be that entrepreneur. What I've learned, and this is important as it applies to blockchain, is that um, these markets all grow the same way. You know, I'm in my 50s now. I didn't know this back when I was in the 20s, but they all seem to kind of go through this. In fact, in Carnegie Mellon, I, I think they call it product diffusion theory, which is, you know, kind of the bastion of geekery way of talking about how products are adopted, how tech is adopted, but it all goes the same way. Jeffrey Moore wrote a book on it, right? Crossing the chasm. And then he wrote another book called uh, Inside the Tornado. And it basically says that markets are started by visionaries. They're very small percentage of the population. Those visionaries inspire early adopters. These are people who get excited about the technology and the value, but overlook the costs and the it's hard, it's difficult, you know, it's technical. And then if the market kind of gets to this 10% penetration level in adoption, it kind of jumps this chasm. It jumps into mainstream majority. 
And then when you jump into that mainstream majority, you go into this tornado to use Jeffrey Moore's term, and then boom, the thing takes off, right? And generally, right around that chasm time, there's usually a bubble and that kind of bubble pops, right? Because what happens is you get this kind of, what did Greenspan call it in dot-com era? Irrational exuberance, right? Remember, guys, remember that? But interestingly, he did that in 1995. And, and Rob, the, the lens that, that Guy and I look at all of these sort of hype cycles and enthusiasm cycles through the stock market, the S&P returned 30% a year from the moment that he said that to when it topped out in 2000, which is pretty fascinating. And I think that's something that a lot of, you know, younger investors or entrepreneurs, you know, when they think about building into, you know, whatever they think is a bubble that's, and bubbles for whatever reason, also in our opinion, they don't have to be negative things. Yeah, they burst, you know what I mean? But a lot of it has to do with the valuation. It has to do with the kind of the money being thrown at, you know, that sort of stuff. So that's just a little aside because I remember coming into the business basically right around the time where Greenspan made a lot of headlines talking about irrational exuberance. That's right. And, and you know, most people, right? So when you, when you think of that product cycle, there's a lot of alpha in growth in that early phase, but it's not really at scale. That alpha doesn't occur until you jump that kind of chasm and you get to that mainstream majority. That's where you have it at scale. And so, you know, as an entrepreneur, you're always looking at that kind of market and saying, okay, where am I in this, you know, in this cycle? Is what I'm working on going to jump that gap and get into mainstream majority? That's really been kind of the guiding principle for me, both as an investor and uh, as an entrepreneur. Rob, it's interesting. When you're a large company employing tens of thousands of people, you can afford to make a mistake in terms of who you hire or who you don't hire. I mean, professional sports teams, obviously, you know, the, the decisions they make in terms of bringing guys and gals in can change, basically can change the fortunes of their team. As an entrepreneur, and you mentioned that you, although you weren't counting, you've had four exits. I mean, when you decide to hire people or not hire people, I mean, that's critical, mission critical to what you're doing. So speak to the type of person that you're looking for and and how you integrate him or her into your organizations. It's really important to understand it depends on where you are in the cycle. So are you five guys? Are you five people? Or are you a hundred people? I was fortunate as a startup entrepreneur, me and a partner and grow the company to 30 people. And I've also run public company with 400 people working underneath me. And those types of people are entirely different. Generally, early on, what you want is somebody that's loaded up with passion, smarts, drive, ambition, but also is a team player because you, you get one you know, caustic person that's in the mix, you could really jeopardize the cadence and, and camaraderie of the team. So we spend a lot of time. In fact, I always say startup entrepreneur or startup CEO's number one job is hiring. Number one job. And, you know, as an entrepreneur, you're always selling, right? You're raising money, you're selling products, you're generally selling stuff you don't have. But most importantly, you're selling a vision and you're doing that to future employees that are going to really grow the business. Once the business starts to get to scale and really starts taking off, then you start bringing in a little different person, somebody who's more of you know a manager and less of a leader, more of somebody who's going to keep the trains running on time, make sure you deliver on cadence, make sure that you deliver to the vision that you're selling. I think a lot of early young entrepreneurs make the mistake, I'm going to hire the same way through that whole cycle. You can't. It is the most important thing you can do as an entrepreneur. So Rob, your path over the last, let's call it three decades, you know, as an entrepreneur, it seems grounded in disruptive technology. And and there's a common thread, I think, with fintech, going back to the example that you gave with Galt, back to the early days of the internet. How has that led you? And and, and I want to talk about Cosimo and, and your focus on blockchain, but also the structure in which your fund is set up, because it's really interesting. But how did it all lead you to blockchain technology? Was this something I get a sense for some of the stuff that I've read and, and seen you talk about, you are not a Johnny come lately. This was not part of the hype cycle in 2017. And then again, in 2020, 2021, this is something that you've kind of done your homework on and you've kind of have a solid foot in the door and you've been doing it for a while. I tend to be too early as an investor, uh, just because I am an entrepreneur. And I think entrepreneurs tend to be too early because they get excited about the technology. So here's the 
here I am, right? I'm this internet entrepreneur. I'm there early on, very, very early on. Built a company, acquired by Intuit. Did another one in the AI space, was acquired by Lycos. Did another one, voice over IP, acquired by Unity. Did another one, uh, AI space, right? One of the things that, you know, when you think about the internet, right? The internet is just this big decentralized network. And we're all on this network. We're all nodes. And one of the problems with the internet is that we've kind of taken our centralized institutions, our processes of, of clearing trades, if you will, which has always been centralized. And we just kind of stuck it on the internet, right? And what, what do I mean by that? Well, like, like for instance, let's take a bank, right? If, if I don't know you and you don't know me and we want to have a transaction, what do we do? Well, we use somebody we trust, like a bank. I mean, that's that's how it's done. It's it, we've been doing this since you know Banco Medici in the 1400s. And when the internet emerged, we just kind of stuck that on the internet. We said, yeah, sure, connect it to the internet, and away we go. Well, the problem is, is that when you take some central institution of trust and you put it on the internet, it becomes kind of a honeypot for everybody on the network to attack, and it becomes a point of failure, a non-resilient kind of point of failure. As an entrepreneur growing up in this space, my team and I, we've always kind of looked at this and said, this has always been a major, major problem, right? And it's got to be solved for the internet to really continue to grow, to really create value. So when Bitcoin came out, it was like a lightning bolt went off because all of a sudden we're sitting there going, holy cow, this technology blockchain solves this kind of problem of that that honeypot, that centralized trust problem. Because what it does is instead of using a bank to clear the trade, it actually uses everybody on the network to clear the trade. And so it becomes resilient. If you're, if you're following me. So, you know, here we are. We created a company. We're, we're helping young entrepreneurs grow. We created it in 2014 and we saw Bitcoin and we said, Oh my God, this is it. And in fact, I, I, I say this all the time. I'm not afraid to say it. This is the single largest value creation event. In our lifetimes. And I, I was fortunate to, you know, go through dot com, through mobile. That's why we created the company we're in now. Can I push back for one second? Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. And, and again, I think, you know, Guy and I, we've spent a lot of time having people much smarter from a technological standpoint than us come on our shows, whether it be on CNBC or on our podcast and, and, and talk about kind of exactly what you're talking about. I love to hear your continued conviction in it because I think some who were Johnny come lately's, you know what I mean, over the last few years seem to be wavering a little bit. So when you talk about opportunity from a value creation, especially when you do it juxtaposed to what you probably felt about the internet 25 years ago, and you were right, okay, you know, you know what I mean? Uh, there was plenty of naysayers back then. Talk to me a little bit about why blockchain actually does all those things that you say it's going to do, because databases do that, banks do that, right? Now, is it that it's much cheaper to do it because it's decentralized, you know what I mean? Because we've also seen, you know, with Ethereum, this huge move from proof of work to proof of stake. And I know you have a lot to say about staking and proof of stake, but that's also been in, in the DeFi area, something of a bit controversial over the last couple of years. So kind of help us think about if you're just a normie like Guy and me, okay, we've heard some really smart people from technology and finance, some of the smartest people I know who believe what you believe. And then there's others who are like, look, look, we told you so, especially in the incumbent financial business also. There's plenty that see this as a threat, and some might actually have disingenuous arguments about why it doesn't work, right? But others are adopting it, investing in and around it. So can we agree that there's definitely a debate about it, you know what I mean, whether it is that value-creating mechanism that you say it is and that you're investing in? Yeah, so I have a couple of uh, – there, there's a lot packed up in that. So I have a couple of thought bubbles here, okay? My first thought bubble is that this is super early. It's not as far along long as you think. You know, human beings are kind of funny. They're great thinkers, but they don't think exponentially. They just don't. Okay. We're linear people, right? We walk to the, across the street. It's five feet. It's five feet. Okay. We're not thinking exponentially. And, and as a byproduct of us not thinking exponentially, 
we always do the same thing. And what we do is, is we overestimate, okay, we think things are going to happen sooner. So we overestimate the short term and underestimate the long term. It's just who we are, right? That's why I have bubbles. Okay. You know, so that's kind of one thought bubble. The second bubble is, uh, and I'm using the word bubble here on purpose. Yeah. I'll tell you, I'll tell you a funny story. So when I started golf, here I am, I'm building this company. It's the first internet server, right? And I go and meet Dan Tolley, the CEO of Merrill Lynch at the time. He's passed away. And I go, I think it was in Princeton, New Jersey, right? And here I am, this young kid, and I go into this room. I mean, the boardroom, the boardroom, the boardroom table, I could have probably landed a plane on. It was that big, right? I mean, the suits in that room, I couldn't afford that with a year's salary at that point, right? And I show him the internet and he looks at me and he slams his hand on the table and he says, nobody will effing trade stocks on the internet. That I can tell you, all right? And, And he just quoted all these issues. A week later, I met with the folks at Charles Schwab, okay? And they said, where do we mail the check? Okay. So I think it's important to understand where we are with blockchain. And, and you remember I opened up uh, talking about this product development life cycle, right? So you got these visionaries, you got these early adopters, people inspire the market. People say, holy shit, there's all kinds of risk. This stuff's going to fail, right? And the bubble kind of pops. But what happens is, is that the institutions out there start seeing, holy, holy cow, this can solve my problems. This can make it more resilient. This can make it faster, better, cheaper, and I'm going to adopt it. And I think that's what's going on right now with blockchain. You know, early on, I used to go down to these investor conferences and, you know, I'd be the only guy talking blockchain. Now you go to them. And, you know, Fidelity, JP Morgan, BNY Mellon, State Street Bank, they've got armies of people there, okay, all working on this stuff. So I think we're right at that point where we're kind of moving that into mainstream. It feels to me like 1999, year 2000. Like I always say to my partners, man, I've seen this movie before. I've been in it. I know how it's going to end. And it just feels a lot, you know, the same way. It's interesting, and I'm guilty of this without question, you know, overestimating the short term, underestimating the long term. You know, I watch the market seemingly on a second to second basis, but in your seat, you have to sort of have a 30,000 foot view of what's going on on the ground in terms of markets, economies, and stuff. What's your sort of macro, sort of high-level view of where we are right now in the economy and to a certain extent in the markets? You know, I don't spend a lot of time looking at the the day-to-day. I definitely see from a macro perspective, liquidity is tough right now. It's tough to raise money. It's expensive to raise money. Valuations have come down. And there is, you know, a fair amount of fear in the market, which, you know, and I, I think across the board. In the blockchain market, there's a whole bunch of fear in the market, right? When you have things like FTX and some of these other things that's happened, there's a ton of fear, right? But then I always come back to the old Warren Buffett quote, right? Be fearful when others are greedy and be greedy when others are fearful. I always get that mixed up. I don't know which one comes first, but I think it's it's be fearful. But I, I, you know, and I I saw, by the way, I saw, again, I saw the same darn thing, you know, back in .com when the bubble popped. Okay. Everybody's like, oh my God, .com, uh," you know, but that's really where all the value happened. That's where all the alpha was. So I think from a macro perspective, there's a lot of fear in the market. Valuations are down. And, you know, for me as an investor, now it's time to go to work. One of the things I say is we're kind of going from, we've gone from kind of speculation to realization, right? We've gone from here's what it could do to actually doing it. And that's exciting. Well, Rob, let's let's talk about that because it's interesting. We have a good friend, Brian Kelly, who, who launched a digital asset fund six years ago. He wrote a book about Bitcoin, the Bitcoin Big Bang in 2014, probably around the time that you got involved. And, and again, it was one of the reasons why I had been paying attention. I think Brian was a great macro mind. 
an investor, and he saw this as not only just a, an underlying technology that could be very disruptive, but also an asset that could be viewed in macro terms, right? Given all the stuff that he looks at in FX and all that sort of stuff. So that's how it kind of got my attention back in the day. But here we are now, and you know, some of the smartest people I know into that 2017 retail hype cycle, and it was with the ICO boom and all that sort of stuff. And then we had this very long bear market, but some of the smartest people are kind of now a decade in, they put their heads down in 18, 19, and they kept on building, right? And then when you think about just in market cap terms or the investment ecosystem in and around different blockchains and different crypto assets, it exploded. And the fact that it's still hovering below, what, a trillion dollars or something like that is, I think, validation for a whole host of reasons. So talk to us a little bit about your mindset over the last couple of years. You know, there's been ups and downs about the digital asset prices, but you created a fund with a couple strategies and Cosmo X, a tokenized venture fund. That seems really interesting. That's not something I've heard before. So talk to us a little bit about the last couple of years and what led you to this unique strategy to invest in blockchain-based businesses. So Brian Kelly's great. He's really a, a pioneer and uh, definitely a great macro guy. Look, our approach is this. We are venture capitalists. And what we do is we invest early on in these technologies as they emerge. And we're really investing in entrepreneurs. We started off as a holding company. Cosmo Ventures is a holding company. One of our products is a venture fund. We also own a piece of a custodian out of Europe. We own a blockchain dev company. So we're, we're doing a lot of things, but we decided to create an early stage fund. And we decided early on, I guess because we're entrepreneurs, that we're going to tokenize this fund. And it's kind of funny because, you know, I have a lot of friends that are venture capitalists. Uh, I was an EIR over at Highland Capital back in the day. And when we told people we were doing this venture fund, uh, people were like, wow, that's great. And then we said, we're going to tokenize it. This was two years ago. People were like, what are you smoking? You know, like it's hard enough to raise money into a fund, but you're going to tokenize it. And we decided to tokenize it because, and by the way, we're the first evergreen fund. I think Spice VC and Blockchain Capital, they were probably the first. And we decided to do that because, again, our mentality is everything's going to be tokenized and there needs to be infrastructure to tokenize everything. And so what better way to learn the market, invest in the market and be party to the market is to actually use it and see the problems of it and learn the workflow and the ecosystem. So we uh, created this tokenized fund. We use Securitize, the same firm that KKR used to tokenize their sleeve of the healthcare fund. It's a small fund. It's you know around $30 million fund, but it's evergreen. And an investor can buy a token that rep basically a token is just a digital share of the fund, but it's on a smart contract. I think we've done about 25 deals uh, so far. We've done some pretty cool companies like Hedera and uh, Casper Labs, Archax out of London. And what it does is it gives investors kind of early exposure into this market. Yeah. So I, I wanted to ask you, you know, so I saw a headline on the information the other day about a, a company called Blur, which is disrupting OpenSea, right? So OpenSea was the largest exchange for NFTs, was doing at the height, I think 90 some percent of the volume and doing massive revenues, right? And 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 so this company Blur, and I don't know anything about it, but I'm just kind of like, you know, I saw this, you know, headline, I read the story. They're basically offering a zero fee um, platform to trade NFTs and they've sucked out tons of the volume from OpenSea. And what they're doing is they're incentivizing people to trade NFTs on their platform. They basically are, you know, have a token. And, and again, like, so the tokenomics is a theme that won't die. It doesn't seem like, I know that there's been hype cycles. There's been some fraud situations some pumps and dumps and all that sort of stuff. But talk to me a little bit about like that. We're seeing, you know, blockchain based businesses disrupt each other now, not just big incumbents, you know? So are these the sorts of companies that you're investing in, in your fund? And obviously you're all in on 
on tokenization and economics in and around it? Yeah. So what we're doing is, is we, we broke the market down into, into really into six segments from the base level infrastructure to all the way over to the actual applications uh, that are being built on, on blockchain. And we really look at what we try to do is get in fairly early. We're not seed investors. We're not going to go invest in something that doesn't have market proof or market product market fit or some kind of, you know, validation. We tend to be a little bit, uh, a little bit later. We also have a hedge fund that we're launching on the proof of stake side, which is much later in the market. Give us just a quick rundown. You know, it seemed like a lot of the regulatory action that's coming down after the fact, okay? And and again, there weren't particularly good guardrails for a lot of these decentralized finance sort of businesses. And, you know, but there's a lot of issues, right? And a lot of these companies have gone out of business and there's been a lot of regulatory action after the fact. Give us a sense of, was 2022 the tip of the iceberg? Has most of the kind of like shady models and the, you know, um, you know, all, all these promises of 20% based on crypto you're willing to stake with a company? Are we kind of past the worst part of that? Or is that stuff that's going to continue to eke out? And will there be better business models established going forward? Because I think it's a real black eye on the industry right now, right? Because a lot of people have lost trust in some of these institutions because they've lost a lot of money. I've seen this movie before. Same kind of stuff happens in all early markets. It happened. And by the way, not just .com. It happened in steel. It happened in telegraph. Okay. It happened in oil. Okay, we can go all the way back in history and see the same thing happening, right? When new markets emerge. I don't think it's unusual that it happened. It's unfortunate that it happened. My attitude about regulation and compliance is I look at it as an incredibly positive thing because what happens is, is that when regulation comes in and compliance comes in, it cleans up the market. When you clean up the market, you reduce risk. You put those guardrails on that mountain road that you're driving down that can be scary. Okay. And what happens is, is a whole new group of investors then come into the market with a whole new level of liquidity. If you think about the indicators on this market, you've got big institutions that are coming in. They've built a lot of infrastructure under the covers. Okay. To get ready for this market. And the last thing, what they really need to happen because they've got a lot to lose if they screw up is compliant and regulation. They need to clean it up. So I think that's a really good thing to happen here. And it's an indicator again to that kind of market timing, product adoption, technology adoption. We saw the exact same thing happen with the internet. What I think here is, and and by the way, the, the point I wanted to make here is that a lot of the fraud that we're seeing that we saw with FTX and otherwise was actually not blockchain. It was the fact that we didn't have blockchain. It was the fact that we didn't have the transparency and we didn't put this stuff on chain. I always shake my head, right? Because we're sitting here saying, okay, we're building blockchain and we're really going after decentralized trust and really proving that this thing can work. And what's the first thing we do as an industry? We go trade on a centralized exchange. It's like, you know, you couldn't, you couldn't make this up, right? I think we're going to move into a more resilient, more trustful situation here. That is, I guess, the dirty little irony, right? For this industry to grow the way it has over the last few years, it kind of needed to be on centralized rails to get to onboard, I guess, the users, right? But talk to us a little bit about this fund that you have set up for staking in particular. Yeah, so we uh, created this fund called Cosmo Y. And really what it's all about is investing in a diversified basket of these proof of stake protocols. If you think about how the internet's going to grow, it's really proof of stake. And so what we're doing is we're buying top 20 proof of stake protocols in a diversified basket. And as we started talking to investors, one of the things that we kept hearing was, well, I'm worried about the risk. I'm worried about the volatility. I'm worried about the exposure on the downside. But I want to buy these assets and I want to stake them. I want to get the reward or the yield from those. So what Cosmo Y does is the investor can actually select one of three risk profiles. They can go 80% hedged. They could go 50% hedged or 0% hedged. And so what the fund does is it buys these top 20 assets, institutional class custody. All of the holdings are held and reported on chain for full blockchain transparency. And then we uh, layer in a hedge 
to protect on the downside and help mitigate the downside. And then we stake those assets to Figment, for instance, which is one of the top staking providers out there. So now you've got this fund that is diversified. It's getting the staking yield, and in many cases, up to 10% of more coins. So I'm accumulating more crypto, but I'm also hedged. And you can dial that up based on whatever your risk appetite is. If you want to be 80% hedged or somebody like me where I don't want to be hedged, I want all the upside. So I think it's a real innovative approach. You know, one of the things that I always... The story I always kind of tell is I was on a panel early on with one of the founders of Grayscale. I was talking about Cosmo X, the venture fund. And I said, well, what are you doing? And he says, well, I'm doing this uh, Bitcoin only trust. And I remember saying to myself, that's the craziest idea I ever heard. Like, why would anybody want to buy a Bitcoin only trust? I can just go out and Coinbase and buy it. And, you know, boy, was I wrong, right? I think, what did they top out at? $56 billion worth of Bitcoin that went into that fund. So what we're trying to do with Cosmo Y is really be a, a turnkey platform for investors to really invest in this wave of proof of stake protocols, which is what everything is being built on. Rob, you have an incredible backstory and you obviously have a incredible proven record of success. So before we wrap, tell the audience where they can find you, what they should be looking for, you know, those types of things. I'm Rob Frasca at Rob Frasca on uh, Twitter. And you can come uh, visit CosmoVentures.com. Our hedge fund is CosmoY.com and our venture fund is CosmoX.com. Great having you join us here on the tape. We look forward to having you back again, and, and we look forward to seeing you at one of the iConnections conferences. Thanks a lot, Rob. Thank you. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, FactSet, and SoFi. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.